Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Sarah Jane Tribble, Senior Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, September 13th at 10.30 a.m. And as always, news can happen fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So, here we go. Today, we're joined by Stephanie Armour of The Wall Street Journal. Hi, good morning. Kimberly Leonard of The Washington Examiner. Hi. And Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, But there's a lot of news. It's September. Everybody's back from vacation. And um, we've been kind of busy this week, especially the last 24, 48 hours. Um, First, the Food and Drug Administration declared that the teen use of electronic cigarettes has reached, quote, epidemic proportions. The agency told five major e-cigarette manufacturers on Wednesday that they had 60 days to find ways to keep their products away from minors. It raised the possibility of civil and criminal charges around bulk purchasing on their sales and their websites and sent warning letters to more than 1,000 retailers about their sales. This comes after the FDA's Scott Gottlieb actually extended a deadline last summer um, for the e-cig manufacturers. Um, He said he wanted to use caution because of tobacco use across the country. So I guess I wanted to kind of start off by asking, was this announcement aggressive enough? Well, the American Medical Association said no. They offered sort of a tepid response. They praised the effort, but they said it could go a little bit further. They wanted to set a certain nicotine level for all tobacco products and do some other things. And so I think, to me, this seems like a very stern warning to the industry that they need to police themselves and they need to get serious about the risk of teenagers starting to vape and getting hooked on nicotine. Um, Scott Gottlieb has consistently said that he believes in having an off-ramp for for adult smokers. He wants to help adult smokers wean themselves using these products. But he has become increasingly concerned about reports of teenagers vaping with Juul, vaping with these other uh, products that are out there. And, you know, Dick Durbin, who's a big critic in, in the Senate on this, said that um, that the number the number of teenagers who are using this has increased 75 percent in just the last year. Wow. So it's pretty incredible. It started back in 2011. Mm-hmm. That was when about one percent of teenagers were vaping. That increased about 650 percent until 2016. And it's just continuing to grow. And so this is kind of what I see as a bit of a turning point. And we did see a lot of advocates supporting what Scott Gottlieb said. They're just concerned that that it's maybe they enough. think it's not enough. I mean, remember, he, he put a delay on regulation of e-cigarettes. As you mentioned, last year, they were supposed to, as of last month, file applications to prove that there were not public health risks. Right. But he delayed last year in July 2017, he delayed that till 2022. And so that's where we are now. He sort of signaled yesterday that the FDA could change its approach for these flavored e-cigarettes. Right. And these flavors come in all sorts of flavors. And they have for years. I remember when I was covering 
Cleveland, the city of Cleveland in Cuyahoga County, um, uh, a number of years ago. The health commissioner there in Cuyahoga County was expressing concerns about these. And he um, brought uh, up the flavors and he had gone out to the convenience stores and they go from chocolate to mint to, you know, all sorts of fun flavors that really are attractive to the teens. Yeah, I find it amazing, the growth. Like it's 132% growth just in overall sales since 2012. I mean, that's Absolutely stunning. Um, and at the same time, you're not seeing the, the, the consecutive drop in smoking that would off smoking drops and cigarette drop sales. So it, it it does. It is that balancing point because you do see this as an off ramp. But at the same time, it's it, based it on the number and its growth compared to the drop in cigarette sales. It's clearly escalating beyond what's happening. Yeah, I think that's really the question for Dr. Gottlieb, who runs the FDA, is the idea that last year he was saying we want to be cautious because we know there's tobacco users out there that want to use this as an off-ramp. But the amount of nicotine in the Juuls um, and the other products, and I say Juul because it's the most popular one out there. It's got 72% of a market, um, and it's uh, the company's valued at $16 billion now. Um, uh, they, they have increased the amount of nicotine in those products. And advocates were saying yesterday that they were concerned that this isn't the same problem they were addressing even a year ago because of the amount of nicotine. Um, and we still don't know what the vaping uh, health concerns may be. We we don't know if what chemicals, what kind of health concerns are related to the chemicals coming out when you heat up um, those products as well. So I think there's a lot left to be seen on this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And flavors have, have been a big issue. I mean, it's interesting that the e-cigarette industry is largely unregulated. They've been able to get away with things that traditional tobacco companies can't because back when Congress gave the FDA the authority in 2009 to regulate tobacco, they targeted flavors in traditional cigarettes. So now the industry is now circling around and, and trying to offer these to people for their vaping products. Right. And actually, tobacco company stocks went up yesterday after the news. Mm-hmm. Um, the big tobacco yes. companies don't own most of the market. Juul does. So the stocks went up yesterday after yeah. the news. But a yeah. few of them are looking yeah. to tap into that market. Yes. And so what's interesting is that these large uh, sellers of traditional cigarettes are very much um, in favor of the regulations and of them happening soon because they really do have the ability to go ahead and file to have these approved with the FDA because they have... Um, you know, um, the ability to fill out all of the, um, to put forward all the funds that are required, you know, to have everything approved. And so um, a lot of them, a lot of the kind of vaping industry ends up saying, well, you know, we have we have smaller marketers and it's going to be harder for us to be approved by the FDA. And so we shouldn't have to go through this process. And so they're kind of um, pitted against each other in, um, in this fight over regulations. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to watch. I know a, a convenience store just down the street from my house um, put up a sign a couple of weeks ago that said, we now have Juul. Um, so it's uh, definitely uh, a market in flux, and we'll see what the effects are and um, and how much more the FDA may step forward and do, I guess. Um, the big news in health policy circles, to kind of switch gears a little bit this week, was on Medicaid, um, something I think we've all written a bit about. Um, Arkansas followed through on its plan yesterday to remove enrollees from their program if they didn't meet work requirements. The state cut 4,353 people from the health insurance program saying they did not report the mandatory 80 hours of work per month. I think this is 80 hours of work or community service or going to school. Um, The Trump administration in January allowed states to propose these so-called work requirements for the first time, and Arkansas was the first state to kind of take action on that. So I wanted to kind of break down the Arkansas announcement and what to expect from other states. A number of us um, at the table have 
well, not me, but the, the others at the table have actually written about um, the other states and the action there. So um, let's kind of first talk about Arkansas and what this means. 4,353 people out of, I think, a total of 26,000 um, were being looked at for these work requirements. What's the takeaway And that's there? just sort of the start. I mean, ultimately, I think the entire population that they expect will have to um, by 2019, is it, have to comply with these work requirements is close to 200,000. Yeah, I think it's about 171,000 yeah. next year once they yep. bring in the 19 to 29 And then it moves up after that. So yeah. this is kind of just a drop in the bucket of what you can expect in um, Arkansas. And I think in, in some other states, it may be higher depending on what kind of requirements get put into place in addition to the work requirements. So there have been a lot of concerns about whether some of this was due to inability of people to understand, to get access, because they can only um, submit their information online. Right. And even then, it's closed during a period of time. And this is a state with low internet access to begin to with? To begin with, yes. yes. So I think what's really going to be interesting to watch on this, frankly, is the lawsuits. I mean, they just decided that the one judge that heard the Kentucky lawsuit will be the same one that hears the Arkansas one, which is which is something that the individuals bringing the lawsuit are happy about. Like they felt mm-hmm. like the um, Justice well, they Department Kentucky, was, yeah. yeah, was shopping around for a judge is what they felt. So I think watching those cases is going to be really important as we see these numbers come out. And there's a number of states looking at these work requirements, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. there's, uh, I think, Indiana, New York, Kentucky um, had said they wanted to do the work requirements. Nine other states were considering it. Where does that landscape stand now? Yeah, and the most recent one is Michigan. And in their proposal, they actually wrote that they would completely end their Medicaid expansion if the work requirements were not accepted. Like Kentucky. <laughs> right, and yeah. so if this is if this is something that you know more states are considering in terms of you know how to continue with their Medicaid expansion, um, that could have kind of a ripple effect on on other areas. Yeah, I'm shuffling through my papers because I wanted to print out something from last night, eight oh um, through uh, nine p.m. somewhere around eight p.m. fourteen hours ago. Uh, Seema Verma, uh, the administrator for CMS, uh, she tweeted out, I'm excited by the partnership that Arkansas has fostered to connect Medicaid beneficiaries to work and educational opportunities. Um, She goes on and says, I look forward to our continued collaboration as we thoroughly evaluate the results of their innovative reforms. So that certainly seems like an open door for uh, proposals like Michigan's, possibly. um, I think we've seen a lot of uh, different messages since January. So uh, they're strong proponents of um, adding work requirements to to Medicaid and even to, um, as the Trump administration said, even to other programs that may not have them at this point. I think the philosophy or the thinking, if you talk to them, is that this really is a way to for uh, get people who are not employed or not in the job market, um, the training, the access, kind of the nudge to get into the job market where they will be able to get employer-sponsored health care. That's what what their argument is and, and also a sense from the Trump administration that the expansion itself um, really is to uh, individuals who are not the most needy, which is what Medicaid was designed for. So that's the thinking from um, imposing or allowing these requirements. Yet it's important to mention that um, in Medicaid, most people do have jobs from previous research, right? Yes, that's well, correct. In Arkansas, two-thirds of the people that they were targeting were exempt because they were already working. So mm-hmm. it was pretty interesting. I mean, only 2% of the people that they were targeting in this group actually completed the working requirements in reporting. So yep. it it was pretty interesting. Um, it's 
It's interesting also to note the repercussions um, in particular states. In Arkansas, you cannot get coverage again for the rest of the calendar year if mm -hmm. you lose coverage. If you hadn't reported within, like, for within three, months. three months. Right. Yeah. That's right. right. There's That's strong right. lockouts. Yeah. There are. And it kind of reminds me of what we saw in Indiana with a different type of program where they did lock people out if they didn't um, provide money to their health savings-like account. Um, and this is really, this is all, these are all the brainchilds of Seema Verma, the CMS administrator. Who worked in Indiana. Who worked in Indiana, who's, who previously before coming to the administration was a consultant to a lot of these different states. And so it speaks to the power of the executive branch. I mean, remember, Congress did not mandate work requirements like they did. There, there was not a big proposal that went through Congress like there was with temporary assistance for needy families or the food stamps program. This is something that the administration decided they wanted to do, and they are pushing through waivers to law. Right. And, and Vice President Mike Pence was very much on board with this. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. In Indiana. So um, it, it does speak to the power of kind of the executive branch and how much that can be done. Yeah. yeah. The breakdown, when you look at Arkansas, and I don't think we have really great numbers um, today, but uh, Arkansas did note that a thousand people in the program had found employment. But that's a thousand of what the total of the pool of 26,000, right? About. So that's a very small number, a thousand of the people they expected to go out and get jobs about a thousand to, to to find them, and I feel like that should also be accounted for and understood better. There are about sixteen thousand people who are not currently meeting the reporting requirements. Now, only forty three hundred of them got kicked off because this is kind of being phased in, and other people will be kicked off at the end of September and October. And right. So. This uh, is part of the, this is the start of the process. Yeah, and they were the first state to. They were not the first state to get a waiver approved, but they were the first state to um, actually impose the requirements. So what happens in the coming months, not just with Arkansas, but with other states? Well, other states will continue to roll out. I think, what is it? There's two other states? Indiana, New Hampshire. New Hampshire. And Indi yeah. In January. Yeah. Right. So we'll see those next. Okay. And, the, and Stephanie's right. The litigation will continue. Obviously, Kentucky, their program was stopped. Arkansas, the, they are pursuing litigation there and will continue Right. That was filed that. in August. So Okay. And then, of course, yesterday there was the census numbers that came out as well. Uh, that came out early in the day and seemed to be have faded by the end of the day. But I think that there were some takeaways from that, including the stagnant numbers on uninsured. Um, we saw that an estimated 8.8% of the population, or about 28.5 million people, did not have health insurance coverage at any point in 2017. That was slightly higher than the 28.1 million in 2016, but um, but it didn't affect the uninsured rate, which was also very interesting. Why? Uh, I, I, I read some articles, and I think I know why, but what, what did you guys take away from that? Well, Medicare, there was an increase in Medicare, and there was also an increase in military. There was also the economy is very good, so a lot of people have work um, provided insurance. Um, this was the first year since 2013 that we did not see an improvement and a decrease in the uninsured rate, um, which people who support the law will say, oh, look, we could have had so much better, a much better situation if the administration had not done certain things, which we could talk about, like the association health plan rule that came out in February or the short-term limited duration plan that came out last month. Um, or, you know, if they had publicized the law or done anything to try to get people enrolled. Um, or if Congress, you know, Congress 
is getting rid of the mandate that people buy insurance that takes effect in right. January. Right. So it doesn't reflect that number. Right. Yeah. So, but people on the other side, you know, they, they say Obamacare is a disaster and, um, you know, but the uninsured rate really wasn't affected that much. Yeah. So. And in three states, the um, number of uninsured decreased, but in 14 states, it Yeah, and the 14 states included Texas, Florida, Vermont, Minnesota, Oregon, a real variety in kind of economics. Yeah, there's no real common theme. So I don't – I think it remains to be seen what happens in the coming months when uh, some of these other proposals do begin to take effect. Right. Um, I think what you're actually seeing is some of that start of the um, divergence between states in in terms of insurance coverage. I mean, you're seeing some states that had the Medicaid expansion, those did better than those that didn't. Um, you're going to start to see an increasing uh, divergence, I believe, in states in terms of the uninsurance rate based on kind of what they do. Those that kind of try to protect the ACA and have states that put the mandate back in place. I think if we project forward, um, we'll probably see um, more of a decrease in the number of uninsured. At the same time, though, the numbers did show that poverty, the people who were the poorest of the poor, uh, got poor. Um, the middle class was fairly uh, stable, I think, and that um, the unemployment rate was uh, at 3.9 percent. So it, when you read through the census report, it does read like they, we will be seeing some changes to those uninsured numbers in the coming years. Um, Kimberly, you wrote about the Save American uh, Works, Workers Act this, this week. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Um, they were – they were going to have a vote on it, or they were at least hopeful to have a vote on it. But because of the coming hurricane, we'll probably see a lot of members, you know, go ahead and head home early. But um, what the bill does is that it uh, takes certain portions of Obamacare um, having to do with taxes and mandates and basically repeals them or um, delays them. And these are all provisions that are even uncontroversial with certain Democrats because they have to do with um, the way the ACA affects um, employment. So things like the employer mandate fine um, would be sort of lifted over three years. Um, another provision would move uh, the definition of a 30 or of a full-time worker from 30 hours a week to 40 hours a week. The other one would delay the Cadillac tax for another year, um, which has been delayed you know repeatedly already. So it would delay it until 2023. Um, and then a final portion of it actually would uh, repeal the uh, tanning salon tax. Um, and so that's another uh, part of the bill. And it would cost the government about $52 billion, I believe the CBO said, over a decade. And um, it's it's probably something that the House can pass. But um, yesterday when we spoke to Senate leadership, they seemed kind of doubtful that it was something they would look at. But it is something for uh, Republicans to, you know, head back to their districts on and say that they, um, you know, had some pro-business measures that they were able to work in a bipartisan way um, because there really have been a lot of Democrats who've supported very similar measures in the past. So this is the kind of a, a bill to put out there so politically they can say, look, we're going back at the midterms. We've, we've tried. We're, we're trying to make progress on helping out these small town employers and these in the, these smaller employers that we have in our districts. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. There are certain parts of the ACA that have been changed by Congress in a bipartisan way over the years, and Republicans have been able to use those changes to say, well, we, you know, we repealed the Obamacare, and then uh, Democrats will say, well, we, we made a fix, you know? So it really is about how uh, the different parties frame the actions on the bills. 
Mm, okay. And uh, speaking of going home a bit early, uh, Hurricane Florence is heading this way as, as we speak, I guess. And uh, I was emailing with somebody in the Senate uh, staffer this morning, and they had said that uh, folks were going home right. um, to to their districts to avoid the storm. Right. Hence the opioid legislation probably, too, will be or will be, I think, pushed. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. being pushed because yeah. they can't vote on it uh, yep. tomorrow or today since people are heading home. Um, yeah, they'll be voting on it Monday evening, and they'll also be voting on a, a provision that deals with something called the gag clause on um, that deals with Medicare drug pricing. So uh, there'll be an amendment that Mike Lee is going to put forward. There was a concern that um, pharmacists were not able to tell Medicare seniors when it's cheaper to pay out of cash than to use their insurance. And so Susan Collins has put forward something to get rid of that, and Mike Lee has an amendment to that. This is something President Trump said in his blueprint that he wanted to be removed, and he wants pharmacists to be able to tell, uh, particularly Medicare beneficiaries, when they can get a prescription for cheaper when it's off their insurance plan. So that should pretty much, uh, I would think that will move forward once it gets presented. Um, I think, yeah, yeah, I think think that there have been, um, the Senate has already passed another gag clause bill. The House is working on theirs. In fact, the House Energy and Commerce right now, as we speak, is taking a look at that. So I think there are different pieces of legislation that are moving forward on that topic right now. Yeah. And speaking of of, of moving through the opioid bill, um, the House worked out all the kinks over that over the summer. It took them a few months. I think that was a compilation of dozens of bills put into that. It's like that. 70, isn't it? Yeah, the Senate version, yeah. I think, is 70 yeah. different 70. bills. Right. And uh, Senator Alexander did take the floor last night at 6.20 uh, p.m. That was what was scheduled, uh, saying that um, he supported it, that it was landmark legislation uh, around opioids. And um, uh, the version is made up of dozens of proposals from dozens of senators. Um, but it also includes a proposal a new provision that I don't think I saw over the summer, and maybe uh, I missed it, but it's something that Scott Gottlieb and HHS have been talking about, and that is this provision to make the U.S. Postal Service, um, well, they've been talking about the import of fentanyl coming into the country and uh, kind of these mail order services. And then in this proposal, um, Robert Pear reported in the New York Times that they're going to put a tag on the Postal Service and and fine them possibly if they aren't reporting to U.S. Customs and Border Control that uh, they've got some wrongdoers, you know, what the status of those drugs is coming into the country. So this is already um, something that's required of FedEx and others. Um, It's in the House bill, so it should be something that would be easily, you know, it'll, it'll become law. And what else is in that package? So there is a provision in there that is actually going to be of great interest to people. This relates to the treatment of Medicaid and people being able to get coverage in inpatient facilities. Right now, there's a limit. People can't get coverage at facilities that have more than 16 beds. And so there is a move in the House and in the Senate as well to expand that. It does cost money, which is one of the issues that they have to work out. This has been a a tremendous problem for uh, health advocates and folks dealing with the addiction community for uh, years and years. Yeah. I, I've heard about this for at least mm-hmm. a decade. And right. the reason it was put in place was to avoid the sort of institutionalization that had happened for so long. But the trade-off was supposed to be that there would be then more community health centers that people could go to um, to treat addiction and mental health disorders. But those never really materialized. And so now here we are in the middle of this opioid crisis, and people cannot find a place for treatment. And so it's kind of one of those, I would say, developments that has happened on the Hill that 
I was a little bit surprised to see because I I thought it would be much more bipartisan, but it's something that has really become kind of a tense point between, you know, lawmakers. Well, and and interestingly, Medicaid will cover some treatment, but if you're in a state that doesn't have Medicaid expansion, you're less likely to have that option for treatment. And, uh, And you don't hear that connection between Medicaid coverage and the opioid discussion um, it, from Congress. You just, you're, and I'm, I've been a bit surprised by kind of that lack of connection when they talk about Medicaid and healthcare coverage. I do think what's really interesting about kind of this push is this is going to allow lawmakers before the midterm to say, look, we've done something on opioids. This is a huge concern for governors. Governors have really pushed this and for the states. But at the same time, you know, there's this issue of there's really not new funding here. This is kind of about steering agencies to in various ways so it's 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 it gives them a some a chance to say that they've done something but there's still a number of governors that are not really thrilled right and this has been talked about on the podcast before so I don't want to hash it out too yeah. much but I mean this idea that a lot of it is preventive and through the agencies as you as you mentioned and not necessarily treatment oriented probably allowed them to avoid talking about Medicaid coverage and connection to it too um, yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's going to be interesting. Um, as Stephanie says, this is in some ways a messaging bill because people want to get out there and talk about opioids now that it, more people will die from opioids than car crashes now. So I think that it's it's something that they are concerned about. But as you look at the different provisions, you know, trying to spur research into non-addictive painkillers or trying to um, provide grants they're not going to make a huge difference. The Medicaid provision could make a little bit of difference. It would allow coverage for up to 30 days. Um, And then in the Senate, Rob Portman wants to go a little bit further. He wants to do it for 60 days. But what I'm told is that they're just going to pass the opioids bill very quickly because they don't want to deal with a big debate. And then they'll hash out those things in conference committee. And they'll get it done before the midterm so they can go back. Yes, and they'll really, try. Yeah. They'll try. That's their goal. I, I, it, it seems to be on track for September, but we'll see. We'll, we'll see what Florence uh, uh, reeks in the air. And, uh, you know, we're talking about vaping. We're talking about opioids. We're talking about hurricanes. It's all up in the air at this point. <laughs> Um, Well, I think it's time to move on to the extra credits. Um, This is the segment where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read, too. Um, Don't worry if you miss it. We'll post the links to these stories on the podcast at khn.org. Who wants to go first? Uh, I will. This is Stephanie. Um, I uh, was uh, flagging a story in the Financial Times uh, that looked at um, opioid billionaire Uh, gets grant for addiction treatment. And this is uh, Richard Sackler um, with Purdue. And this was a really good story because it, 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 looked at the fact that um, here's a company that obviously has benefited significantly financially and also been um, uh, raked over the coals for uh, the way that it marketed opioids. And now it is looking to benefit financially from a product that aims to provide treatment. Even even more. I mean, right. this is a product that melts in your mouth, mouth faster. <laughs> right, right, right. So that has um, led some advocates to say, look, they shouldn't be able to financially benefit from this at all. Um, but it's it's a good story that shows that, you know, these pharma companies can potentially make profits from both sides. Yeah. And the Financial Times has been really following this yes. story and kind of on track. Yeah, and, doing and a good job of it. Yes. Yeah. Kimberly. Uh, my story comes from Harper's Magazine and it's by Katie Booth. And um, the title is, Can Hospitals Learn to Better Treat Deafness? Um, one of the topics that kind of keeps coming up when it when it when you look at um, doctors and patient relationship have to do with language barriers 
And um, this one addresses one that I think doesn't get a lot of attention, um, but that is is worthy of, of a look. And um, the author did such a phenomenal job uh, pulling together, you know, her personal experience with her family and looking at um, the more national implications. So highly recommend that for a, a read. Yeah, it was a lovely read when after you suggested it and um, one that you want to kind of sit down and cozy up with. It's not a quick news read, that's for sure. Um, but it was lovely. Um, Rebecca. So mine is a top doctor didn't disclose corporate ties. This was in the New York Times by Charlie Ornstein and Katie Thomas. And this is sort of another installment in ProPublica's work and the New York Times work uh, as well on doctors who have ties to industry and what that means for patients and what kind of concerns and ethical concerns that raises. So Charlie has, over the years, done a great job in looking at the open payments database that Medicare puts out and tracing those relationships and talking about it. So I highly recommend it. This is... um, a cancer specialist, the chief medical officer at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. And he said he was inconsistent in reporting his ties to various drug makers. But read the story and take a look. Yeah. And if you're interested in how much your doctor takes from drug companies or academic center takes, you can go to ProPublica's website. They've got a great database. They've owned the market on that open payments database and made it really user-friendly to use. Um, So if you have a doctor you're wondering about, definitely go there and look up their name. I've done it uh, for stories and personally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Mine this week is from Bloomberg. It's called The Secret Drug Pricing System Middlemen Used to Rake in Millions. It was by Robert Langreth. David Ingold and Jackie Gu. A couple of those uh, are heavy into data reporting as well. And this story really showed that. The data analysis on this was astonishing. Um, They've got a methodology box at the bottom that you can read. They went through a couple of different databases, including Medicaid payments. And what they found was um, that the pharmacy middlemen markup in Medicaid plans and how much states are actually paying for kind of their state-run health plans, they were really kind of able to drill down into those numbers. I highly recommend reading it. It also is the best explanation of PBM price spreading that I've seen in a while. And surprisingly, the story focuses on generics as opposed to brand name drugs. So it's it's definitely worth a read. We'll have the links to all those stories on our website. Um, and that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That will help other people find us too. And as usual, you can email us with your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at SJ Tribble. At Steph Armor One, at Leonard KL, at Rebecca Adams DC. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.